1 Peter chapter 2, we're looking at verses 9 and 10 this morning. First Peter chapter two, verses nine and ten. Building upon Peter's words last week, Peter continues this morning in a fashion to give us comfort and to give us encouragement, give us strength in the days in which we live by addressing the people in a much similar situation as ours. Remember last week that Peter talks to them about who they are and where they are. They are living stones, small stones, built upon the chief cornerstone whom God chose and divinely placed there in all of His perfection. He is the perfect stone. He is perfectly cut. He is Everything about him is perfect as using that metaphor from the ancient field of construction. Jesus is our cornerstone. We are built upon him. And yet for some, Peter closes out verse 8 by reminding us that there are some who have rejected that cornerstone. And they have tripped upon him. They have rejected him. They reject his claims and those claims to them become a scandal. And they await the punishment and the doom of rejecting Christ in eternity future. And so Peter continues on for us, switching gears now back to us who know Christ. Those who are followers of Christ. And he comforts us and he encourages us with these words. But you, in contrast to those who have rejected, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you were once not a people, borrowing from the words of Hosea, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Father, again, help us. Send your spirit to accompany your word. Lord, I pray. Oh, how my heart desires that you would encourage your people with this text this morning. That you would build them in their faith their walk with You, their confidence in Christ, so that nothing will shake them. Lord, please do this. So that as Peter says, we might proclaim the excellencies of Your name. We pray this in the name of Your Son who accomplished that for us. That great work of redemption. Amen. One of the first questions that we teach our children once they become of an appropriate age, usually it's around the time that they are old enough to go off to school or to begin to participate in activities where we might not be present. That thing that we teach them is 
where they live, and that's vitally important. If they become lost, they can tell the policeman or the fireman where they live or a teacher where they live in case they need to get a hold of the parents. And so one of those vital and serious questions our children learn is to answer the question, who are you and where do you live? Well, my last name is such and such, and I live at such and such so that they know to whom they belong and they know where they belong and there is security in the reality then of what they know. Remember last week as we started Peter's text in verses 4-8, through eight, we talked about the Bible having a unique approach to a theology of place. The Bible places much emphasis on locales throughout Scripture, whether it's the garden and the specific dimensions there, the dimensions of heaven. Uh, the, the Bible is keen to give us a theology of place. Place matters. It mattered in the life of the children of Israel as they would construct monuments to Jehovah because He had done great things in a certain place. We are called as New Testament believers to realize that God still has a place for us. And that place matters, and that place is the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and nothing outside of that place matters. That's the reality. There is the place or there is no place. There is the place of blessing in Jesus, or there is the place of cursing for everything outside of Jesus. And now as believers, as followers of Christ, those who have accepted who He is, and what He has accomplished on our behalf, we are built into that place. That is our address. That's where we belong. So that in a crisis moment, we know where to go. We know to whom we belong, and we know where that is, and because of where it is, it makes us who we are. It's much more than just a theological truth that Peter is presenting to us this morning. It's more than just a fact that is revealed throughout Scripture. We live, brothers and sisters, in a fallen world. You know that. I know that. We tasted that this morning. We will feel that more acutely as we move throughout our day. We live in a fallen world. It's not anything close to perfect. Your aches, your pains, your trials, your anxieties, the news, all of these. It reminds us we are pilgrims in a fallen world. But by the sheer grace of God, which no one in this room fully understands. We just can't get our arms around the massive truth of his grace. By that grace, this world is no longer our home. It may be where we put our feet and lay our heads, but we really don't belong here. We're just pilgrims on a journey passing through. That means that life for us will hold within it all that comes with life in a fallen world and yet Peter gives us this hope that we have been placed in Christ and being placed in Christ our real place of address our real residence is outside of this world let me remind you who Peter is writing to 
the Apostle Peter, Peter is not writing to a group of people who have it all together and everything's grand for them and life is easy. He's not writing to people who have this new faith that has come upon the world scene in such a way that that world accepts their faith and is fine with their faith. No, he is writing to people who are severely vexed, severely challenged, opposed by the world because of what they now believe. They are potentially very discouraged people. I imagine we'll meet some of these people in heaven at some point and we'll be able to ask them, what was it like when Peter wrote you that letter? And I would assume that they will say, well, we were anxious. There was uncertainty in the life that we lived at that time. We, we were uncertain about what the outcome of our life would be. I mean, after all, this is a new faith. It's only years old, maybe decades old at the best. And, and, and you know, who really knows? There were moments of doubt. And uh, it was a tenuous time for us. And so Peter, again, not writing in his own wisdom, but writing under the inspiration of God himself, knows exactly how to remedy and cure their anxiety, their challenges, their discouragement, their doubts, just as much as he does for us. God has preserved this word from Peter's day until ours. So how will these Christians in Peter's day and how will these Christians here in this room this morning in our day make it through? How do we complete our journey in a way that is God-honoring, that finds life at the end? How is it that we will be preserved? How is it, brothers and sisters? Just look around you. Look at the world around you. Don't look too long, but just look. And I know that so many of us have asked the question, what is it going to be like? As depravity works itself out, as as sinfulness abounds and multiplies, you wonder, how, 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 God, how is it that I'm going to be preserved? How are my kids going to be preserved? How are my grandchildren going to be preserved? How is the church going to be preserved? In the days that we face, just like Peter's day. How is it that we will remain living stones without being knocked off by the wind and the waves of depravity that beat against us? How? How? Well, the answer, dear brothers and sisters, is found in verses 9 and 10. And the answer is found not in what we will do, but in what God has already done. In who God has made us to be. And and I hope you'll hear me clearly this morning. I, I hope that you'll listen and look into the word of God. This is one of the deepest and most profound theological truths found throughout scripture. We are God's people by God's work. It is a humbling truth. But it is a fortifying truth because of its power. Because of its effectiveness, I believe that Satan has often taken the words of this text and other texts that say the same thing and misconstrued them and misguided too many thoughts when Scripture is clear 
about what God has done for us. It is the Word of God. It is clear so that the people of God may stand unwavering, unafraid, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, even in stormy seasons. This, loved ones, is where we live. This is the truth we live in and we live upon as the remnant that God has constructed and preserved by grace. And so this morning, I want to give you three assurances that are found in verses 9 and 10. And I want to say at the outset that the assurances that Peter gives us in the Word of God this morning cannot be lost. Do you know why they cannot be lost? Because you did not create them. You didn't make them. You did not enact them. Therefore, you cannot lose them. They are secure because of Him who created them. Secondly, they cannot be eroded because God is keeping them for you. Not only can they not be lost, they cannot be diminished. God is sovereignly holding these truths for His people to keep His people even in the darkest of times. And so let's begin. Number one this morning, there is an assurance of distinction. I mentioned it already, but as Peter closed verse 8, he has focused upon in that verse those who reject God's cornerstone. The sovereign Son of God, the one whom God had appointed from eternity past to come and be the Savior for the world. They've acted out in their unbelief. And according to God's predetermined hardness of heart to their everlasting judgment, they have rejected the cornerstone. And so Peter begins verse 9 with this great contrast. But you, an altogether different group of people. I'm not talking to them anymore. They have every right, they have every angle and prerogative to be shaken to the core. But you, on the other hand, are built upon the cornerstone. A group of distinct differences that Peter will enumerate for us as he moves through verse 9. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. And such were some of you, but now. Right? Don't, don't you, you know, th- these are the low-hanging fruit for preachers. And I think every preacher, when he begins to preach at whatever age God calls him, and he begins to minister the Word of God, will preach a series or at least one sermon from the great texts of the Bible that just contain these words, but God. You can just do a little search uh, for yourself and see how many times in Scripture that occurs. But God, and such were some of you. There are these distinct, hard 180s that God puts in Scripture to say, yes! That is a glorious distinction. Praise God. I'm no longer of those who reject the cornerstone, but am now one who accepts Him and is built upon Him. You are no longer what you were, Christian. And you are no longer what they still are. And so have hope in God because He is working differently in you than He is working in them. You are a body. You you are different. You are individually have been built upon Christ, and now you form a collective whole that are products of God's undeniable grace. And so for us, it is entirely appropriate that we sing to the Lord, that we 
praise the Lord, that we give glory to God and testimony to one another because of what we have been made. And we humbly fall astounded at the grace upon our knees that has brought us out of what they still are. You know, there is a very real sense, brothers and sisters, we are living in a day when it is very easy, and I'm speaking and preaching to myself as much as I am to you, but we can look at the world around us and get very agitated and even angry. And there is a sense in which there is righteous anger at some of the things we see in the world around us, but there also must be a compassionate mourning. Because we too once walked. But now. But you. And the but you is not because you were better than them. The but you and but now does not come because you made some prayer that God somehow was obligated to respond to. The but you doesn't come because you're, you're from the right pedigree or you know the right things or you read the right book. The the, the but you that Peter begins with comes because God is infinitely gracious. And we don't deserve one iota of that grace. But God came to make us different than what they are. And we need to remember we once were. We possess something in us That only God could put there. Not because we were logically skilled enough. Spiritual enough. Morally superior enough. Had better logic than our neighbors and friends. Who are still outside of the living cornerstone of Christ. We are here brothers and sisters. And we are immovably and eternally here. Because of what Peter says in the rest of this verse in verse 9. And so there is an assurance of distinction that that we are distinct. God has marked us out. You didn't mark yourself out. God marked you out. God worked within you. Just as He did in the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Paul was not seeking God except to find God in Christians in order to kill them. But God... But God, Peter then moves into the bulk of our consideration this morning, the assurances now of the identity that has been given to us by God. What do Christians need in difficult times? Peter knows because the Holy Spirit gave this to him to give to them why we can hope, how we will endure, how we will not be lost in the end is a, is a complex and perplexing reality and question to us. But it is not to God because look what Peter says. You are a chosen race. You, and by that I mean you, so I can't name all of your names, but you fill in your name. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you emphatically and all those around you who know Christ by faith are included in Peter's teaching. You are included 
individually and we are included collectively as a group of people. Notice what Peter says, you are a chosen race. We are a race. This is to say a a people who share a common ancestry, an origin, a descendancy. We can link our lives back together as descending from one transcendent person, family tree, however you want to say that. That That is the essence of the word Peter chooses to use here. You are a related people. You have a common heritage. And we know as we work our way through the New Testament that this heritage that we share is not based on class. It's not Jew and Gentile. It's not male and female. It's not rich and poor. It's not free and slave. It's not, uh, you know, uh, skin colors that were prevalent throughout the ancient world, whatever that might be. None of that matters. Peter said your descendancy, your common heritage, your oneness finds itself in this, that you are a people chosen by God. That's it. You are chosen by God. I know we've all seen them, and maybe you have one. I guess my family doesn't care about each other very much because I don't have one. But, but family reunions, often when they get together, they'll print t-shirts, right? And they'll say, you know, whatever family reunion in the year or whatever. And those shirts don't merely say, we are one big family. That name means something, doesn't it? That group is together. They, they have something in common because of a person or As the song says, all because two people fell in love. There's a descendancy. There are generations that flow out of that. These people did not join themselves to that family. Those people didn't say, well, I think I'll choose to get one of those t-shirts. They were placed in that family either by natural process or by the even greater picture of this text, which is adoption. They are chosen. People make choices that affect downstream individuals. And it's true for us as well. We don't just belong to a nebulous group. We belong to an intentionally created group. Look what Peter says. You are a chosen people. In other words, the gospel that came to you was not a random shot in the dark that may or may not have worked. God effectually and effectively chose you. This is the work of God. This is not nebulous and it is not random. This is not Darwinian. Well, let's throw it out there and hope it works. No, God did this to to create a people for himself. We are connected to his actions as much as we are connected to the relational actions of our parents and grandparents and so on and so forth. They made a choice. We have benefited from it by being here today. Just as God made a choice to create us as a people, a perfect God. I know, I understand that when you start talking about the doctrine of God choosing, 
it can get a little, ah. I don't know, that just doesn't sit right with me. Let me remind you, that's, that is our compassionate emotions talking. But you've got to remember, this is a perfect, sovereign, gracious God who cannot fail, does nothing wrong. And Peter says, he did this. And this is how you'll endure, and this is why you'll endure, because you are a people chosen by God, a common people. Why are you and I? Why are you and I incapable of suffering the loss of our salvation? You ever ask that question? Why is it impossible for you, you, you as a Christian to lose your salvation? Because God chose you. Because God keeps you. I love what John MacArthur said. If you could lose your salvation, you would. And you already would have. Let's go back to those great two words, but God. But God. God did this. God orchestrated this. God has moved in this way that we would be recipients of grace that includes the gift of faith by which His salvation is appropriated to us. But not even the faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, comes from us. Why? So that no man may boast, so that everyone would have to say, this is God's doing. This is not mine. That by faith, we may be placed into the living stone that Peter has talked about previously. And thereby, in that living stone, receive the life of that stone, the declaration of the Father's approval, that we would never be lost. God has done this. God has always chosen a people. Always. Adam and Eve, well, why not Steve and Barbara? I don't know. Why Abraham? I don't know. Why Noah? I don't know. Now, Noah's a tricky one. Because all of us kind of get this Wrong view of Noah that somehow Noah did something to deserve the grace he found. No, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's the emphasis of that line. Not that Noah had righteousness that God looked down and found favorable. No, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord because he didn't deserve the ark. He deserved the water. And it didn't take long, by the way, from Noah coming off the ark to prove that he deserved the water. God has always had a people. Why Jacob and not Esau? I don't know. But I'm telling you it's true because the Bible says it's true. And God always has had a people that He has chosen to be preserved as His remnant by grace. That they would never fall away. They've been defined by their choosing God and by God's choosing of them. Devin Coughlin not too long ago, wrote a new hymn and it says this, My Lord, I did not choose you for that could never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. You took the sin that stained me, you cleansed me, made me new. Of old you have ordained me that I should live in you. What beautiful words. Lord, I did not choose you. That would never be. 
I would still refuse you if you had not chosen me. Peter has a firm understanding of this. And Peter, of all people, has experienced this. Think about Peter's track record. It's not a very good one. He's boisterous. Disobedient. At times, even denying the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet Peter doesn't fall away. And yet Peter is ultimately kept. Why? Obviously, Peter's not choosing God at every point in his life. If Peter could lose his salvation, Peter did lose his salvation. Let's put it that way. By his denial of Jesus Christ. And so Peter has a very personal connection and the Holy Spirit uniquely chooses Peter to write these words to people under duress. And would you just go back with me to the beginning of 1 Peter, please? And see how this thought flows throughout Peter. Just in the first chapter alone, preceding our text this morning. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the chosen, that's the original word order, to the chosen aliens, our English Translations have tried to smooth that out and put chosen further down in the sentence. But in the original text, it is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are chosen in. And then he lists it. Verse 3, Peter says, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It is not them choosing God in verse 3. It is God causing them. Notice that. Verse 5, we find this. God has protected them by His power. That they are not remaining because they are better, they are stronger, but because God has chosen them and is keeping them. Verse 15. Peter says, but like the Holy One who called you, this is the same word, lego, to call out, to choose, to mark out as distinct. He's called you in that way. An effectual summons it's like a a jury summons i understand in our day and age the juries that i've been called to far fewer people show up than the summons that went out people just ignore those things like crazy now what are they going to do about it they got bigger fish to fry and so there's this kind of civic disobedience i guess to our duties But this is much stronger than that kind of summons. This is an effectual summons. It is one that will be forced and caused to be followed through on. Verse 21 of chapter 1. Who through Him are believers in God. So that your faith and hope are in God. It is rooted there, not in us. You see. Then verse 23. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, you've been born again through the sovereign, living, and enduring Word of God. When God speaks, it happens, brothers and sisters. What God decrees cannot fail to come to pass. And our comfort is in that. That if He has chosen us and called us, we cannot fail to make it through 
Jay Adams, who recently, just in the last few weeks, went home to be with the Lord, said this. This doctrine removes all boasting and yet establishes a dignity of heredity that enables a chosen one to point to God as the father of his race, his people. It humbles us, but it enables us to say, God did this. God created this group of people. D. Edmund Hebert says it is, a, it is a reality to be treasured, especially in times of persecution. I'm here because God chose me. I am a chosen stone placed upon the chosen stone. Notice, if you go back and read verses 4-8 through eight in chapter 2, Peter refers to Christ as the chosen stone. And we are chosen stones upon the chosen stone. Christian, when the world rains its hatred down upon you, and it is, and it will continue to, when you are canceled, criticized, ostracized, marginalized, penalized, we see it all, don't we? Remember this. God has chosen you to be set aside. He's put you aside. He's marked you out. And yes, you do stand out in the world. But know this. He is the one that puts you there. And the world will hate you because it hates Him. But do not fear. For you have been chosen for this task. You have been chosen to belong to this family. You have been chosen to be part of this kingdom that He is building. And as the old hymn says, in the midst of that, how can I keep from singing? Paul likewise endured the trials of his ministry driven by this truth that God had a people. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10 For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, Paul says, so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Why did Paul endure all that Paul endured? You think about what Paul endured None of us would sign up for that. Shipwrecks, beatings, trials, mockery, rejection. Paul, man, Paul experienced it all. Imagine there were days when Paul thought, Lord, just take me home. Why? Why does this continue? But notice what he says. I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. So that they might hear the gospel and obtain salvation, which is in Jesus Christ. You see, this choosing doesn't just automatically qualify you. There's still the means that God has chosen as well. And that is the preaching of the word and the acceptance of the word by faith. You know, it's interesting to me. It's interesting. I think it's just a, a failure on people pastors teachers to teach thoroughly church history um, some would look at this and say well this this kills evangelism kills missions no it doesn't it does the very opposite it fuels missions Paul says, I'll go anywhere and preach to anybody and endure anything because I know God has chosen people who will accept Christ. 
All the great missionaries that we admire, they did not deny this truth. They embraced this truth. That's why they went to the places they did because they believed, as Judson did in in Burma, there were people who God would save if He would go. He lost lost wives and children and was in prison and suffered disease for seven years without one convert. But he was convinced the very tips of his toes that God had a people in Burma to save. But they would not be saved if no one came and preached. And so he stayed. And in that eighth year, the Lord opened the windows of heaven. And God sent an awakening to that people group and they began to come to Christ. To the fact That today there are more Baptist churches in the nation of now Myanmar, which is under persecution, more Baptist churches in that little country than in all the rest of the world. Judson stayed because Judson believed God had a chosen people, a royal priesthood among those little people. And he would save them if he stayed. Jesus in John chapter 10 said, Other sheep I have which are not yet of the fold. In other words, they're out there. I have a people. I have a remnant that I will save. I will go. They're not here yet, but they will be. I'm going. We will overcome, brothers and sisters, because God has chosen us. And by His choosing He has written our names in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Now let that sink in. When did God put your name in the Lamb's book of life? Well, Revelation 17.8 says, The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Confirmed again in Revelation 13 8 and 21 27 that the Lamb's Book of Life is a settled book, sealed book, cannot be improved upon, added to, taken away from. Revelation 17 14 follows 17 8, speaking of those whose names is in the Lamb's Book of Life from the foundation of the world, and it says this, these people will wage war or i'm sorry that the 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 enemies of god will rage war against the lamb and the lamb will overcome them he is lord of lords and king of kings and those who are with him are called the chosen and the faithful previous to that in verse 11 they overcame him john says by the word of their testimony what's our testimony we are the chosen and called and faithful We overcome Him by our testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. Two truths confirmed throughout Scripture. God chose and God chose in eternity past. Ephesians 1.4 He chose us in Him, meaning in Christ. Same as Peter saying, in the living cornerstone before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless. Romans chapter 9 is that that great... uh, illustration from the old testament there's jacob and esau how did jacob make it out and and by the way jacob's no good man jacob he he's a scoundrel he's a liar he's a cheat he's conniving like his mom 
sure Isaac reminded Rebecca of that. He's just like you, you know. He's not a good man. But neither is Esau. To the point that no human is good. And yet, God chose Jacob. Why? I don't know. But in choosing Jacob, he effected a change in Jacob's life. And Paul asks the question in verse 14 of Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there, in, there is no injustice with God, is there? Is God unjust to do this? Paul says, may it never be. Accursed is the thought. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will show compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. That's verse eight of first Peter two. To this end, they were. Appointed. And so this is far broader. These truths extend far greater than just Peter's words here. But they are the source of Peter's words throughout his two letters. Not only 1 Peter, but 2 Peter as well. Just as you read. As you read 2 Peter. People will often point to chapter 2 verse 9 that. Sorry, 3, 9 that. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is so true, brothers and sisters. But read who he's talking about. He says, this is the second letter I've written to you. Who's the first letter to the chosen ones? God is not willing that that any of the chosen, he has set his decree so that none of the chosen will be lost, but that all of them would come to repentance. And that's the the, the stone upon which we rest, that is the pillow upon which we rest our head, that we will not be lost. Because God is doing a work. Drawing upon chapter 2, verse 5, where Peter mentions the fact that we are being built on the living stone, he refers to us as a holy priesthood. So he continues now in verse 9. You are a chosen group of people with that in common. And you are a royal priesthood. We are the royal people of God created to lift to God the eternal worship that is due to His name. Why does God save anyone? To Ask yourself that question. It's a good question to ask. Why does God save anyone? Well, because... Because... He just wants everybody to be happy. Because he just wants everybody to go to heaven. Because I don't know why. Why? Because in every redeemed sinner comes a new chorus of worship and praise for the salvation. Why does God save anyone? To create a greater choir of singers to sing his praise. Not because we deserve it, not because. Any other reason than God wants the glory and deserves the glory. And in saving more people, there are more people to tell of His glory. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. God says this, I am the Lord, that is my name. 
just go back to Exodus 33 and 34 and pick up on that name. I will not give my glory to another, he said, nor my praise to graven images. God wants the glory. And in saving, God is raising up a royal priesthood to honor him. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3. You remember Leviticus 10, what happens there. It's not necessarily all good. Moses says to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke. By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. What had just happened? There's a great deal of unholiness in Israel. A great deal of false worship. And before all the people, I will be honored. Um, Aaron's two sons had just been consumed. Why? False worship. Strange fire before the Lord. God says, listen, you're going to come near to me. You will be holy. I will be honored as God. Aaron's two sons are nowhere to even bury. They're just gone. Consumed. And Aaron keeps silent. Why? He knows that God is right. How is God honored? How is it that He is glorified? He is glorified by a chosen priesthood raising up to Him the eternal sacrifice of praise. What did priests do? Priests raised offerings. Who were offerings for? The people? No, they were for God. They were to appease God. And so, Peter says, listen, what, what, what hope do you have? Here's the hope you had. God saved you because God wants what you alone can offer as a saved, redeemed individual. And that is your praise. He has raised you up for the praise He deserves and will have. He will never allow that glory of redemption to be stolen or minimized. Or credited to anything else by any other means. He will be regarded and so he has chosen us. He has set us apart so that we might raise forever as priests continual sacrifices. Why does God save people? Why do we invest in missions? Why do we share the gospel? Why do we take tracts out of the back and go deliver them to people? Why do we pray for our lost friends and neighbors? Because we want more people to worship God for eternity. This is another aspect of God's divine working. We have been made priests. We will also be kings with Him. He goes on to say, Peter does, that we are a royal priesthood to offer up these sacrifices and we are a holy nation. Like that first descriptor of a race, Peter now draws upon that again as a nation, a corporate identity as the people of God. We are a nation, a group of people, not only bound together by a common ancestry, but by a common faith. United under one common rule and ruler. Our greatest bond is that we have been made a holy people. What does the word holy mean? You probably have the picture of sinlessness in your mind, of purity and spotlessness. But the word holy in its very root means to be set outside, to set apart, to cut out from, to be reserved for something else. 
And that is what the people of God are. We are set outside. We have been consecrated to God, set apart, reserved for God. That's the real essence of holiness. Now, in doing that, the purity comes. But it is because God has set us apart. That's what Peter says in verse 15 of chapter 1, right? But like the Holy One who called you, separated from all things. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The independence of God, the aseity of God. He is outside of, separated from all things. Therefore, He is unaffected by this world. But like the Holy One, the set-apart One who called you. Again, it's that same idea of choosing in the same word family here. Be holy yourselves. Be set-apart yourselves in all your behavior. Why? Because God did this for us. God set us out, marked us out, cut us out. You know, one of the, one of the things I really enjoy watching, and I've watched a little bit of it again recently, uh, cowboys or animals like, you know, shepherds and collies that are trained to cut out sheep and cattle and herd them and work them. It, it is fat. You can waste a lot of time on YouTube. It's, it's, it's mesmerizing to watch somebody really good at their skill. And this is a picture of God. He's cut us out of the world's flock. He's pushed us aside. He's separated us into its own pen for His praise, for His glory, to, to assemble the choir of heaven on earth there so that we might start the practice of our praise. We are a unique people chosen by God, marked out a a nation of people under His perfect rule. When God ceases to be king, His people will cease to exist. And I have news, good news, He'll never cease to be king. When He ceases, we cease. But He's not ceasing. So we go on. Peter says, you've been cut out and placed under His kingship, which is going nowhere. Four years from now, God's not in jeopardy. Two years from now, God's not in jeopardy. There's no turnover in heaven. Glory to God. You've got, you got to just get in these people's shoes for a moment and imagine what they're feeling at this moment. Okay? Okay? Okay, yeah! We can do that. We will do this. By God's grace. He says you are people for God's own special, unique possession. You belong to God. The word means acquired property. For safekeeping. The experience of security. This is what you are. You are God's unique people for His own possession. Why? Again, let's ask the question, why? Why? So that we might proclaim. Every one of you are preachers in this sense. Every one of you are proclaimers. Who know Jesus Christ. You have been saved to proclaim. Proclaim. The excellencies. The word means uncommon character worthy of praise. Uncommon, I'll say, no one else has it. But God alone. And we've been set apart that we would sing about that character and extol all the ways that God is worthy of praise. 
Christian, how good are you at doing that? How good are you at praising God? I, I did this experiment in a class I taught years ago. I had all my students. I said, all right, here's a piece of paper. When I say go, I want you to write all of the glorious attributes of God you can think of. First 30 seconds. Next 30 seconds. Next minute. And then the pen started going down. We know far too little of the excellencies of our God. It should take the rest of our life to be able to explain this. And Peter says, you've been saved for that purpose. God chose you for that purpose. And listen, in the midst of the trials, that's what you can do. Hey, what were Paul and Silas doing? In jail. Singing. Why? It didn't change their reality. Paul's probably thinking, Whew, I don't have to preach anywhere tonight. I can just sit here and praise God. I can just extol the excellencies, the uncommon character worthy of praise. Virtue needed when virtue was called for, one commentator says, I can just sing about that all night long. I have the time. Your life is a chosen, created chorus of praise that God will not do without. He will have your praise. And if we can say we can live without that praise and it's not that important to us, brothers and sisters, do you really know God? I'm not talking about coming to church and singing X number of songs on a Sunday morning. I'm talking about as you drive home today, thinking about all the ways that God has worked for you. All the ways that God has redeemed you and saved you and what He has saved you from. And that will never end. God will not lose, in the end, those who He created for such a grand purpose. You are secure because God's not giving that glory or honor up. So that's why we know we'll make it through. He rightly loves his own glory and we are living proof of that glory. And We can bear witness and we must bear witness to that truth. And we are alone can do that. Angels cannot do that. We've been given a song to sing that angels know nothing about. Creation itself may proclaim the goodness and the greatness of God, but it can't do it in the way that the redeemed can. It's up to us. Isaiah 43.1 But now, thus says the Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel. They didn't form themselves. Abraham didn't go, You know, today's a good day to leave the Ur of the Chaldees. I'll just go out and worship Yahweh. That'd be a great one. No, God had to go and get Abraham and bring him out. He was an idolater and a pagan like all the rest. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. For I have called you. Chosen you. By my name. You are mine. The people whom I formed for myself 
will declare my praise. He goes on to say in verse 21. Lastly, very quickly, verse 10. Larry explained this to us already this morning. There's the assurance of history. You want proof, people? You want, you want to know how this works? Look at Hosea and Gomer. Look at Hosea and Gomer. God tells Hosea, go choose Gomer. But Lord, go choose Gomer. Okay. He goes and gets Gomer. Brings her, marries her, brings her into his house. She leaves and is unfaithful. She bears children through her infidelity. Comes back, leaves again. Comes back. And God says, now Hosea, now you understand what it's like for me and Israel. I chose them. They're filthy, they're rotten, they're no good. They're scandalous. But I chose them. And notice what Peter seizes upon in verse 10. For you were once not a people. Hey, you were nothing until I chose you. Gomer is nothing until Hosea goes to her. Israel is nothing. You and I are nothing. We are not a people. We are not the race. The chosen race. The royal priesthood. The holy name. We are not that. In our own doing. But now you are the people of God. Why? Because God came for us. Just like Hosea came for Gomer. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. But God. And by the way, the way that Peter writes this is very astounding. He says, you were not. He writes it in the perfect tense of the Greek verb, which means it is sealed. It is a done deal. This is it. You are not the people of God. But (laughs) now you are. Using a different tense of the verb that points to a specific action that created a vision and a distinction that is now more sealed than their previous condition. Now you are. The people of God. And you will be the people of God. For all eternity. Why? Because God's work. Of choosing and redeeming and creating a people for his own praise. Why are we not going anywhere? Why is the church of Jesus Christ unshakable? Why are we unstoppable? Because God. Because he's done this. We don't fear. We don't retreat. God has done this. Oh, how these words must have comforted comforted these people. How these words ought to comfort us. It is a securing, purpose-filled, enduring, energizing truth that will stabilize you, brothers and sisters. And it will mobilize you just as it did Paul just as it did Jesus, just as it did the great missionaries of the world, who, by the way, read their biographies. Again, if you're not reading church history, start. If you're not reading great missionary biographies, start today. 
many of these missionaries in the missionary movement of the 18th and 19th century packed their belongings, not in suitcases, but in coffins, knowing they would never return home. And they would set sail, energized, mobilized by this truth. Yes, they were going to cannibals. Yes, they were going to headhunters. Yes, they were going to fill in the blank. Didn't matter. God had a purpose. God had people to add to that heavenly choir. And they were going to go recruit. May God help us to be as stabilized, convinced, joy-filled, Going people. Our country needs missionaries. It needs missionaries who believe these truths. You're already here. So now the question is, will you go? You know the truth. You are set free. Go preach it to others that they may be set free. And endure as God's heavenly choir. God, your mercy and grace is overwhelming. We can stand upon that rock. Lord Jesus, you are the living stone. We are built upon you. We cannot be dissuaded, taken away from, harmed by, Anything that comes against us. Because this, God, is your doing. As Psalm 118 says, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous and wonderful in our eyes. Oh Lord, help us to rejoice and sing your praises. Help us to stand fast and to stand firm. And to go forth. And give an answer to everyone who asks of the hope that is within us. That they too might be called to that same hope. Called in such a way that we know you will. You have a remnant God. You, you are working. And not one of your chosen race will be absent in heaven. You'll bring us all home. We know that. So Lord, let us rest and let us work for Your glory, for Your praise. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.